Welcome to Power Play. I'm Evan Sullivan. On the program today, Florida's hurricane fight is going on right now. It will be one of the storms people always remember. Hurricane Ian is lashing the west coast of Florida right now. Deadly winds, storm surges of over 10 feet doing incalculable damage. How bad could it get? We will get the latest on the ground. Tom Walters is in Tampa. We've got ongoing coverage. And then from Hurricane Ian to Hurricane Fiona, the staggering cost of recovery. Over 600 members of the military are in Atlantic Canada right now. Obviously, the prime minister and many ministers are there. But what financial help will the federal government provide to the provinces? We'll get the latest from the mayor of Charlottetown. Plus, who controls Canada's gun laws? The courts have repeatedly held that this is an issue that falls within the jurisdiction of federal government. Well, Alberta's pushing back against that, and they don't want to enforce Canada's controversial gun buyback program. Is this a test of sovereignty or a sign of a bigger battle over gun laws to come? MPs are going to debate that. Plus, we will fact-check the inflation debate with the former parliamentary budget officer, Kevin Page. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Okay, a tale of two hurricanes right now. Communities underwater, literally. As Atlantic Canada is recovering from the devastation of Fiona, Florida is being pummeled by Hurricane Ian right now. The storm has made landfall. It's packing winds of over 250 kilometers per hour. That's just shy of the worst of Category 5. It's not just winds, though. Some communities on the west coast, like Fort Myers, are experiencing a storm surge that could surpass 2, 3 meters, like 10 to 14 feet of water. Let's go to Tampa, Florida right now, where Tom Walters, our CTV News correspondent, joins us. Tom, uh, what part of the coast are getting hit right now? Well, right now, uh, Evan, we're really uh, seeing the, the force of this storm coming ashore. Uh, particularly in the area between Sarasota and Naples. So Fort Myers is getting hit hard, and uh, Naples has been hit hard. The storm is expected uh, to continue on a kind of diagonal track that's taking it just south of Tampa, where we are. Uh, and Tampa is going to be grazed by those hurricane force winds. What we're seeing now is still sort of tropical storm strength, and it's been intermittent. We've had some very, very uh, strong winds here and uh, periods of um, torrential rain. Uh, we're in a little bit of a lull at the moment. But there was a lot of concern in Tampa about uh, storm surge from Hurricane Ian, and uh, those fears have been eased somewhat as the storm tracks just a little bit south of Tampa. In fact, if you look at Tampa Bay right now, a lot of it is bare ground because what we're seeing is a kind of reverse storm surge. Because the storm is moving south of Tampa and with that counterclockwise rotation, the wind direction is actually forcing water out. It's an offshore wind forcing water away from the shoreline here. So storm surge in Tampa has really not materialized. But what, what counts as good luck here, here is very bad luck further south, where uh, Naples and Fort Myers have been very, very hard hit. Now, we're actually starting to see this storm losing some strength a little bit. Uh, it hit at um, 
you know, winds were blowing at about 250 kilometers an hour, which is really just below the threshold for a Category 5 storm. But we're seeing those wind speeds dropping now by about, about 15 kilometers an hour. Uh, the barometric pressure at the core of the storm is starting to rise a little bit, which is an indicator of, of losing strength. But it's still a Category 4 storm and will be for, uh, you know, for hours to come yet. But as it moves inland to sort of the middle of the uh, Florida Peninsula, it's expected to drop off to about Category 1 and then be downgraded to a, a, to a tropical storm as it hits Daytona Beach and returns uh, out over the ocean. Well, okay, yeah, Tom. As you can see, the wind CTV's is picking Tom up Walt. a little bit. Yeah, I can hear you, Tom. Okay, so CTV's Tom Walters. Thanks, Tom, for yep. that. We're live there. Uh, in Tampa, that's Tom. Uh, of course, there's been an evacuation order for 2.5 million uh, people in Florida. But places, as Tom just said, and we'll go there a little later in the program as we try to get connection there, uh, places like Naples, places like Fort Myers, which is about a two-hour drive south down the west coast from where Tom is, uh, they are getting pummeled with massive storm surge, so a totally different picture there as Hurricane Ian has made landfall. We'll follow that. But let's turn back to the hurricane here in Canada, of course, Hurricane Fiona. Atlanta, Canada is still reeling from that historic hurricane. The federal government now has over 600 members of the Canadian Armed Forces currently in three provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, and PEI. The Prime Minister continued his tour of devastated areas today. He was in Port of Basque, and we'll go there later in the program as well. That's in the southwestern part of Newfoundland. But crews on the island of Prince Edward Island are now working around the clock to restore power after the hurricane left much of the island in the dark. PEI announced a $50 million fund to provide financial support for islanders in need. But as recovery efforts are in progress, more is clearly needed. But what did the federal government promise today? We'll bring in the Charlottetown Mayor, Philip Brown, right now. Mayor Brown, good to talk to you again. Um, I know much of your province with, without power. How are efforts going on, including you, by the way? I know you and I spoke. You are without power. Uh, what's the situation now? I think we just lost it. Well, speaking about without power, I think... Uh, Mayor Brown froze. I spoke to him yesterday, and he and his wife had been without power for a number of days, as many people on the island were. You're looking here at uh, pictures from earlier today of the Prime Minister. Now, he was in Port of Basque, and we're going to go there. That's, of course, in Newfoundland, but he was in PEI. And the promise from the federal government is there's going to be some tax relief programs. But as in the case in Florida, and you're seeing here, this is an insurance crisis as well because a lot of these folks are going to get insurance on their homes, but a lot of folks don't have what's called overland insurance. That's for water and those storm surges that come over around. Um, so let me go now. We'll try to get the mayor back. I will go to Adrian Gobriel. He is in Portobasque where the prime minister was. Adrian, let me bring you in there. Uh, what a devastating scene in Portobasque. Again, folks, we've just gone from... Prince Edward Island up to Newfoundland. This is the southwest coast. Um, Prime Minister was there. Uh, the Premier was there. Give us a sense of, of what the tour was like and what they promised for relief. Yeah, you know, the tour today with the Prime Minister, Evan, um, he, this is his first time boots on the ground here in Porta Basque, surveying the damage, as many have been doing now for several days, talking privately with res with residents who, who, who've lost everything, who quite literally only have the clothes 
on their back. He went to the, to the nearby, some of the nearby areas, the Lions Club, the Legion, uh, where they've, they've, they've set up these, these massive uh, rooms full of donations that are pouring in a real uh, sense of that East Coast hospitality that this part of the country is so well known for. Earlier in the day, I was also speaking with Premier Fury. He says that the province has pledged $30 million when it comes to immediate relief for residents here who have been hard struck. Though, as you talked about, you know, whether, when it comes to insurance claims, so many homes here, upwards of 100 homes have been damaged. Many of those swept into the sea. Many of them, you know, many people owned land that no longer exists. It was swept away by the storm surge. And the question is, how do you rebuild? Where do you rebuild? And many saying the 30 million currently pledged by the province won't even scratch the surface when it comes to helping people relocate, rebuild some of these homes that were devastated, that were destroyed. Uh, you know, people had mortgages on and now they have rent. What do they do? Because their home is gone. Yeah, 100 homes in Puerto Bascalone, Adrian. And, and what about the federal government? Did they provide? I know they've got 600 members of the Canadian Armed Forces in the three provinces, including where you are. Um, but what other financial support uh, will they be providing? I know there's a joint fund with the provinces. Uh, did the prime minister give any indication? There was talks uh, about supporting the fisheries and the industry down here. But, uh, you know, pledges when it comes to, 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 you know, everyday people who've lost their homes. We're told that more information will be coming in the days ahead on that. Um, and people are anxious. People, you know, there's so much uncertainty right now. And, you know, I think a lot of it, the, the, in, in fairness to the province here, when it comes to their $30 million pledge, they said that they're ready to put more money up. The feds say they're ready to step up to the plate as well. But they're still trying to get a sense of just the toll, the financial toll of the devastation here in uh, Newfoundland. Adrian, one of the things that, and I spoke to the Premier of Newfoundland Labrador as well, uh, they're stepping up, but time matters, right? And, and I, even uh, Goody Hutchins, uh, the Rural Development Minister, who represents Port Basque, who I know you probably saw today, she was in the area. I also spoke to her. Like, they realize time matters, right? You can't say 30 million today, the weather's changing, these folks have, as you say, urgent needs. Uh, the rebuild is going to be unbelievably difficult and slow. As you know, the weather can change there in a snap. Um, is there an urgency to getting money into people's hands ASAP? Well, that's what they're saying this $30 million is for. It's a way to expedite money and get it into people's hands who need it most. You know, however, people have to apply through the Red Cross to get that money. So is it going to arrive fast enough? Uh, you know, time is going to tell. There really is an urgency. You know, we're, we're here on, on winter's doorstep. I can tell you yesterday uh, there was rainfall warnings. It absolutely poured down here, hampering efforts. Uh, you know, by the day, it's getting colder. People uh, are, are, are wondering what the months ahead, where they will live. Uh, will they even be able to rebuild where they once lived? And a lot of the homes down here were passed through generations and generations. This is a community that you know has a, has a, has a close history with the water. Uh, and the water has given them and the ocean has given them so much. But as we've also seen, it's now taken it away. Okay. Uh, CTV's Adrian Gobriel. He's in Port of Basque, southwest part of Newfoundland where the Prime Minister ministers, the Premier was there today in the devastated uh, region there and there's a long road ahead. Adrian, thank you for that. Of course, folks, look, um, we're covering two different hurricanes, one in um, Florida, Hurricane Ian, and still the devastating. And you saw there 
just trying to reach the mayor of Charlottetown, Mayor Brown, and we just lost the connection. I mean, these, these are folks that haven't had power for days now. Uh, so we'll try to get that up. Welcome to live television covering a disaster zone. We will. Uh, we do have another reporter standing by in Florida, but again, we'll see how the power goes down there. But in the meantime, the government's gun buyback program has triggered a controversial response from Alberta. Alberta is fighting against the program. It hasn't even started yet. Do they actually have the law on their side, or is this a political stunt, as the federal government says? Will the gun buyback program lead to more legal showdowns? We have members of parliament standing by to debate the gun laws next. Stay with us. And so this is a federal law, and I think it bears repeating that when it comes to the matters of regulating firearms, that the courts have repeatedly held that this is an issue that falls within the jurisdiction of... Believe me. Alberta's taking aim at the federal government's planned firearms buyback program. It hasn't even started yet. Is this setting the stage for another turf war over who's got jurisdiction? Well, this is the law. Now, Alberta's Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, says today that he's challenging the constitutionality of the new federal firearms prohibitions. He says the province will not provide resources to the RCMP to begin the buyback program. He's dismissing it all as a confiscation plan. He's prepared to launch a formal dispute under the Provincial Police Service Agreement. It gets a little weird here when he went on to speak for the commanding RCMP officer in Alberta, alleging he's also not in support of the program, although we haven't heard that. Does all this sound a little familiar? Remember, Alberta was one of three provinces that challenged the constitutionality of the federal carbon pricing law. That legal saga ended when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the federal government. But can the government really speak for the RCMP in Alberta? And is a gun buyback program really the best way to stop crime? That's another element. Let me just give you some data on that as we get to this debate. Firearm-related violent crime made up 2.8% of violent crime reported to police in 2020. Handguns accounted for 63% of the violent crime in urban communities in 2020. In rural communities, the rifle or shotgun was the most commonly present firearm. By the way, one in four female victims of firearm-related violent crime were already victims of domestic violence. So how much of an impact will this program have really on safety? And who should actually have control over enforcing gun laws? MPs are here to debate that. Liberal MP for Davenport, Julie Derozic is here. Uh, conservative public safety critic Raquel Dancho is here. And the NDP House Leader Peter Julian joins us. Uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Uh, I don't know. Can, Julia, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. Okay, I didn't. I didn't. Wasn't sure if you were ready yet. Uh, what's the response to uh, the from your government from the um, liberal or sorry, the Alberta justice minister who's saying basically uh, he's going to challenge the constitutionality and the jurisdiction of the federal government? Uh, well, so first, it's a pleasure to be here, Evan. Uh, the thing I just want to remind all listeners is that in May 2020, uh, the federal government banned all assault-style weapons. We gave a two-year amnesty to anyone who is legally uh, owning assault-style weapons uh, until we are able to put a buyback program put into place. And so that buyback program begins at the end of this year, and it extends until about October next year. So uh, as uh, the minister in your initial clip uh, indicated, the courts have consistently uh, reminded everyone that firearms regulations is squarely in the jurisdiction of the federal government. 
And uh, we know that the RCMP is there to enforce the laws, and they will be enforcing the laws, and we have confidence that they, they will uh, do so. Okay, well, they, they, they are, okay, thanks uh, for that, Ra Raquel Dancho. What do you make of the Alberta Justice Minister's challenge? He's got various avenues of challenge, or should he just accept the fact that he may not like it, and we can debate the merits of the gun buyback law, which I think deserves some debate, but what about the constitutionality of it? Is this squarely in the Conservatives' view in the purview of the federal government? Well, first off, Evan, we're deeply concerned that the Liberal government is going to be redirecting RCMP officers from fighting crime and keeping our streets safe to confiscating lawfully owned property from Canadian citizens. It is reckless. It will contribute to making our streets less safe, and we do believe yeah. it's the completely wrong approach. But do you believe it's... That's the merits of it. But what about the constitutionality of it? Is that still in the jurisdiction of the federal government? We're certainly reviewing what Alberta is uh, pursuing. They seem to be within their rights to pursue legal mechanisms to reinforce their position. We are certainly concerned at the federal level with the cause of gun violence in the first place and the failure of the Liberal government to address it. We've seen violent crime up 32 percent since 2015, since Prime Minister Trudeau first took office. And again, this plan will redirect RCMP officers from responding to 911 calls to confiscating lawfully owned property from Canadian citizens. It is the wrong approach, Evan, and it is reckless. Okay, uh, Julie, let me go back to you on that. Peter Julian can't hear us, so we've now uh, it's not like we're cutting Mr. Ju uh, Peter Julian out. Oh, maybe he can hear us. We've got a technical issue. Peter Julian, if you can hear us, what's your sense first on the on the legality? It, does this fall, in your view, in the purview of the federal government? Uh, and so the RCMP ought to enforce it. And then, is this an effective policy? Let's talk about the merits of it. Well, well, first off, in areas of, of federal jurisdiction, federal law should apply. And you can imagine what, what kind of a country we would have if uh, within federal jurisdiction it was defined differently everywhere in the country. How confusing that would be for all Canadians. So, yes, uh, the, the, when, when there are laws that, that apply, they apply to all Canadians. There, there aren't exceptions, and, and this is why it's so important that that when Parliament of Canada adopts legislation, that it's respected by, by folks right across the country. Okay, Ju Julie Durkowitz, let me go back to you. Let's just talk about the merits of this. StatsCan, and I just read this, reports that basically just 2.8% of crimes uh, are, are really uh, dealing with some of the guns that you're talking about here, that handguns are really the key, um, the key... Uh, factors, especially smuggled in handguns. I guess the question is, you may have the diagnosis right, but is the prognosis right? Do you have the wrong solution uh, for the problem here? So I should, probably should have mentioned this the first time around, but our, our assault-style weapons, they're, they are guns that are used to kill. So they were used in the Quebec mass killing, and they were also used uh, in the United States in their latest mass killing, which is the Uval, Texas killing. So these are guns that no one should have. The only reason people would have them is they're killing machines. So we absolutely need to get them off our streets. I would also remind all listeners, Evan, that since we were elected in late 2015, we have made um, tackling gun violence and getting guns off our streets a key priority for us. We passed C-71. We've put hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to the border, uh, to our C CBSA, to ensure they have the technology and the resources to be able to ensure that guns don't come into our country. We've also spent hundreds but of millions are. of dollars. But they are. But I mean, my, my point is, but they are. So, 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 I mean, I know Raquel Dancho wants to jump in. Are you, 
They have done that. That's fair to say. And these guns, some of the, you know, their contention is hunters and don't need these, a lot of these kind of guns. They don't need an AR-15, for example, they say. But what's your contention when you hear the Liberals say that? Well, the fact is, Evan, that the Liberal soft on crime policies for the past seven years have contributed to some of the highest rates of gun violence that we've seen. Uh, we've also seen that they're going to be spending $5 billion on this buyback program is the latest estimate. And yet they're only spending a fraction of that. Sorry, to what's, the so what's soft on crime? What, what, not mandatory minimums? Is that what you're saying? Well, like that's what? That's certainly one of them that they've contributed to a few years ago. They also uh, contributed to a bail reform that has seen a revolving door of criminals. That's contributing to a lot of the violence we're seeing on the streets. They talk a good game, and yet they don't actually deliver on any of the results. Again, violent crime's up 32% since 2015. Clearly, their approach is failing. We know the, the problem is gun violence, uh, with gun violence is gang and criminal activity in major urban centers that are smuggling guns across the border. And yet they're putting a fraction of the money to stopping the problem and billions of dollars to confiscate lawfully owned property from licensed, trained, and vetted law, uh, lawful firearms owners. Okay. The approach isn't working. Uh, Evan, Julian, what's Evan? your response to that? Well, well, first off, I, hey, ahead, I, I think we all, we, we all agree that uh, the, the, federal, the federal liberal government has not put the resources into stopping the flood of illegal guns from across the border. That is very true. I also remember the Harper government completely eliminating the crime prevention centers across the country that were absolutely fundamental in preventing crime. So the conservatives, uh, I, I think... Uh, should, should take a break from questioning anybody else, given how poor their track record was as well. We need to have federal laws respected. We need far more investments to stop the illegal guns from coming across the border. And I, I, I quite frankly think both liberals and conservatives have not the track record that they, that they can be proud of, given, given how, how, how they have treated uh, both in government. But, but, but I guess from, from the NDP, like... There's not infinite resources, just real quick, um, because the NDP, you've got this deal with the, with the Liberals. There's not infinite resources. Should the resources that will go to this gun buyback program, you know, maybe there's some benefit there. Why not just switch those to stopping the flood of illegal guns and really focusing on that instead of diluting both? Uh, well, there, there, there seems to be unlimited resources when we talk about overseas tax havens, both Liberals and Conservatives spend $25 billion a year uh, in money, tax money that goes overseas uh, with no cracking down on that. There are a whole range of things, the bank bailouts that, that we can talk about in terms of what, where these, uh, these two parties invest their resources. We believe that cracking down on illegal weapons is important and, and there should be more resources devoted to it. And that doesn't, doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't be investing in the buyback. It means that we can do both, but we have to be much smarter about federal finances, right. and neither conservatives or liberals have been, quite frankly. Uh, okay. Julie, 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 let yeah, me just, last I, I, question. Here. Can you, sure. can you uh, just answer Raquel Dancho's point? If violent crime is up 35% in the last sort of seven, eight years, does, is that an indictment of federal policies on this? So first I would say, Evan, that uh, the hundreds of millions of dollars that we've spent uh, for additional resources at the border have absolutely worked uh, because we actually were able to uh, stop a, number, a record number of guns from actually crossing our border last year. So that's one. It's important to indicate that the Conservatives actually cut funding uh, to CBSA when they were in power. So that actually results in some of the guns actually coming into our country. So that's important to note. The other thing we've done is Minister Mendocino has also set up a cross-border task force 
to look at all additional ways for us to ensure that we maximize all of our efforts and our resources but, to ensure right, that's But, but my, just my question was, is the rise in violent crime an indictment on the fact you haven't done enough yet and you ought to maybe do something more about it? We absolutely always should be doing more. Uh, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars attacking the root causes of gun violence. Right now we're in the middle, we have uh, put a ban on uh, handguns uh, being sold in our country. Uh, so we are uh, in the process of, uh, of trying to pass C-21 through the House of Commons. We've passed C-71. There's a number of measures that we've put into place to make sure that our streets are safe, our cities are safe, and our country safe. And we're not and we're going to continue to do more. And yet the, the gun violence is up, Julie, across the country. It's never been worse in this country. Since your government has been in power since 2015, the, the streets are less safe. And your resource spending on lawful, led, uh, vetted, licensed, and trained firearms owners far exceeds the money you're putting into the border and preventative measures to prevent crime from happening. Your pr approach has failed. Okay. Uh, can, can I take a break here? Uh, Julie, Raquel, and Peter, first of all, great to have the three of you here. I wish you were all in studio here. Uh, I do think these are critical debates, and I like having all the MPs back. So Thanks for that. I do want to get to some news you need to know right now because the Governor General, Mary Simon, is visiting the James Smith Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, another horrific crime there. Simon made the trip to comfort community members who are grieving from the stabbing rampage earlier this month at the First Nation in the nearby village of Weldon. Simon, of course, look at, obviously, she was with the community. She was invited by Chief Wally Burns. This is... We should never forget, 10 people were murdered there. 18 others were injured. Two suspects, the two suspects are dead. They had long criminal records, and one of them out on parole. Uh, today marks the 50th anniversary of the final uh, game of the Summit Series. Better news, one of the most iconic sporting events in history. Some of the hockey legends who were part of that win over the Soviet Union back in 72 gathered in Toronto today to talk about the series' legacy. The eight-game contest saw Canada's best take on the Soviet Union's best. It was as much about sport as it was about politics in the Cold War. There's Ken Dryden, who was one of the goalies then. Four games in Canada, four in the USSR behind the Iron Curtain. Here's some old footage of that. Look at that. Hard-fought series is credited with helping open up the game of hockey to the world and really big moment for Canada a new two dollar coin goes into circulation today of course the image of Paul Henderson's iconic series winning goal Paul Henderson was there today so is Serge Savard and many others Friday September 30th is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation CTV News Channel will have special coverage all day long Coming up, the government plans to double the GST rebate and provide dental care to address the issues of the affordability crisis, but there are concerns that these will contribute to inflation. We'll fact-check that with the former parliamentary budget officer who joins us next on the Press Gallery. Stay with us. It will have an impact on inflation but I don't think it will be a measurable or significant impact on the economy, given that it's a relatively small amount in the overall picture of a, a $2.5 trillion economy. That is the parliamentary budget officer before the Senate basically saying, you know what, the government's affordability measures, which we'll talk about, will really not materially 
contribute to inflation, which may pop a political bubble. Inflation, look, does put pressure on Canadian pocketbooks. No one doubts that. It's 7%. That puts political pressure on the government to address the rising cost of living, gas, groceries. It's killing everybody. The federal government did put forward their affordability plan. That's the doubling of the GST rebate, the dental care benefit for kids from low-income families. And the Conservatives and others have said this is going to contribute to inflation. But the PBO, as you just saw, said to a Senate committee, they will not have a measurable or significant impact on the economy. So has the government struck the right balance in helping Canadians? Or is the government already over its skis on inflation? Press galleries here. The parliamentary uh, reporter for the Toronto Star, Tana McCharles, joins us. The political reporter, Jian Lum, joins us. And our special guest is Mustafa Askari, the chief economist at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy and the former assistant parliamentary budget officer. Good to see everybody. Mustafa, you and I have been here uh, on this, talked about this on the show just last week. Um, but did the PBO essentially contradict claims that we see every day in question period from the Conservatives that the affordability plan are going to cause inflation? Is, is, is it basically, did he try to lay that to rest today? I think he did. I mean, he, he said the right thing and very consistent with what I said here on this program a couple of weeks ago about this, this uh, issue. And I mean, it is a small amount, but it is, is it intended to help low Canadian uh, families, it's targeted and it's temporary. So all that, all those factors uh, tell me that uh, the impact on inflation is going to be really negligible. And uh, it is going to allow those families to, to, to be compensated for part of that increase in their cost of living that they are, they're experiencing. Yeah, Tonda, it was interesting watching the debate play out. The Conservatives were saying, we're not there. they voted for the doubling of the GST tax credit, but not for the dental plan, not for the rent of the 500 bucks rental. And they also believe that the uh, carbon price, the carbon tax, is also contributing, and the Liberals argue that the rebate actually covers that. Uh, Tonda, what do you make about how this debate is playing out, From frankly, just from a straight-up fact point of view? Well, look, I think part of it is the complexity of the debate, right? It's hard, it's easy to talk in simple messages, especially for the opposition. It's, it's difficult to explain all the factors that contribute to inflation. Um, but, you know, you, said, you mentioned at the outset in the intro to this that it's killing everybody. Well, it, it's not killing everybody equally. It's not hurting everybody equally. And I suppose, you know, that's a difficult con concept to explain to people, the, the, the impact on lower-income Canadians versus everybody. And uh, so the government, you know, is trying to say they're targeting measures to a certain uh, portion of the population that is impacted proportionately harder. Um, they've also time-limited some of them. The GST tax rebate that's going to be doubled is only for six months, and the Conservatives supported right. that on that basis. But they, too, haven't adequately sort of addressed why then they don't support other supports for lower-income Canadians uh, on the housing, for example. You know, the, the Conservatives have made housing a big, uh, a big platform for themselves. But, uh, you know, rental housing top-ups of 500 bucks is not a ton of money, but it will target and help a certain portion of people. By the way, it'll also help, you know, those children living in their parents' basements that Poiliev has always talked about. They, too, are eligible if they're paying 30% of their income in rent. Mm. Jeanne, what strikes you about the debate? Uh, on one side, you've got the Conservatives saying, you know, the GST, uh, fine, but everything else is in contributing to inflation. They also say cut the carbon price increases, uh, even temporarily. The Liberals say, no, it all works, but 
look, if they're temporarily rolling back the GST tax credit, could they temporarily I don't know, stop the price on carbon to lower gas prices? fodder right now but I think you know what the PPO really provided last night was good context and some humor but though I know a lot of people may have not spent their Tuesday evening watching Senate committee uh, but you I did, did. I, yes I yes, did. did and I did find it interesting particularly one point where um, the PPO mentioned that he, he acknowledged specifically exports and revenues from the oil and gas sector as a factor in mitigating the high energy costs that we've been seeing in recent months so I thought that was also very interesting uh, political trauma that could be picked up from opposition benches and used in question period. And we are also expected to hear from the PBO more uh, next month because that's when the PBO is expected to uh, release a new fiscal and economic outlook, which uh, to he, he kind of teased that it's going to be good news from a fiscal perspective in the short run. But because it's a 75-year horizon, that report, we'll see how this winter and uh, winters uh, <laughs> the rest of our lives uh, will we'll fare out. Mustafa, just picking up on that real quick, uh, what's your take on the inflationary element of the price on carbon or and or the contributions to CPP and EI? Again, the Conservatives keep saying these are taxes, they're hurting people, it's the wrong time, stop them. Uh, are these, A, or is this, do you regard the CPP or the EI as taxes and should they be rolled back right now? Well, I mean, CPP and EI are, are payroll taxes, but they are taxes that are paid for people to get them back if they're unemployed or when they they become pensioners. So in a sense, you know, you can't really call them taxes in, in a way, either the insurance premium for your EI or is it is it the sort of the investment in your in your pension when you, 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 you get retired. There's no doubt that it, it affects the... The, the disposable income or paycheck of individuals when they get it every every two weeks it, it's lower because of paying those those, those, mm. those elements. Now the carbon tax is a, is, a, is a different issue because if you reduce the carbon tax right now uh, temporarily, then you have to also stop paying paying the rebate at the same time. So overall, the impact of that on individual families is going to be essentially zero one way or another because most income, low-income families actually probably get more than what they pay for, for the carbon tax impact on, on energy prices anyway. So if you stop that, then, then they won't get that rebate as well. So I, I'm not sure how that is going to help uh, individuals and in low-income families. The big, the big picture political. The, yeah, go ahead. Well, quick. I was just going to say, ahead, Evan, the, the, the big picture political challenge is that the, this government is, uh, has basically anchored its climate change policies on pricing carbon and pricing it not just for big emitters, but for all consumers of uh, fossil fuels, and that includes individual households. And so it's, it's an anchor of their climate change program. I don't expect that they will dial that back. If anything, they want to make sure that that sort of thing is politically impossible to undo or, or roll back because in their view it is the a market-based solution towards dealing with consumption of carbon so I don't expect that but I do expect them to try and send a message in the coming months about how they're going to be fiscally prudent given the overall economic landscape and the uncertainty in the months and uh, that lie ahead with you know some predictions of a recession uh, and as as Mustafa was saying earlier you know where this is going is still sort of to, be, to, to right. be seen, but I think that you're not going to see the Liberal government go out and throw a lot of more money out 
to the general public if it isn't targeted and, and in fact, could have an inflationary impact. Okay, I got to take a pause there. Mustafa Askari, thank you so much for being here. And by the way, just on a fact check, I know the Conservatives like to say that uh, can Canadians are not getting as much money back from the rebate according to the PBO. The PBO says they are getting more back, but they won't by 2030. So just a little fact check on that. Uh, Tonda and Jian, just hang in there. Uh, we have reached another reporter in Florida right now. It's pretty tricky right now because of Hurricane Ian right now. It's uh, right now walloping the west coast of Florida. NBC's Chris Pallone has now joined us from Tampa. Chris, give us a sense right now. I know in Tampa things are significantly better than they are about two hours south of you. What's going on in that state? Right. Yeah, Evan, you're right. It is hard to reach reporters in Florida, but uh, I'm a little easier because the conditions here are nothing like just, uh, you know, 100, 150 miles to my south where they are really getting pounded by Hurricane Ian right now. Those areas, you're talking about Fort Myers, Sanibel Island, Naples, are getting the worst of this. They're seeing winds of 150 miles an hour. They're seeing storm surge uh, of, a, of a 18, up to 18 feet, a couple of stories over one and two story buildings, cars floating down the street. Uh, hopefully the people who were supposed to evacuate did evacuate because the pictures there are absolutely devastating. Here in Tampa, a little bit different story. We've been getting the outer edges of this storm for most of the day. Some heavy rain, some heavy wind, but then it would taper off for an hour, hour and a half, and it would be relatively pleasant out, and then we'd get a little bit more. And now we're starting to see more consistent rain, more consistent wind as this storm slowly makes its way to the north and northeast. But this, uh, the problem is, is that this is sustained. It's not going away, especially in the areas that are being hardest hit. It's lasting for hours. And this storm, as it gets over land, is even slowing down a little bit. And so you're going to see in places like here in Tampa, a lot of rain, possibly flooding, but also Orlando in the center of the state, Jacksonville in the northeast part of the state will all be affected by this storm. Uh, we've got a couple hundred thousand people without power in the state. That's expected to go up to the millions as the storm moves through. The ground is saturated, so trees and power lines are expected to come down all in this storm's path. The storm has been spawning some uh, small tornadoes in the last several hours, and especially in the overnight hours, and that continues to be a possibility as well. So it is an absolute mess, but people here in Tampa would not trade places with people just a short distance to our south because it is so much worse near the center of the storm, Evan. Yeah, NBC's uh, Chris Pallone in Tampa. The Tampa thought it was going to get walloped, but as Chris says, Chris, uh, down south Fort Myers and that whole area, which many Canadians know is a very popular area for Canadians as well as Americans, that storm surge sure. is going to be you know, lethal. So two and a half million people under evacuation order will find out the result. But we are in the middle of it right now. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate you joining us from Tampa. NBC's Chris Pallone sure. doing work there. And we'll, we'll continue to follow this. But actually on that theme, what is the cost to climate change? There's a new report that says billions need to be spent to mitigate against more disasters like Hurricane Ian, like Hurricane Fiona. Are things going to get more expensive? What would that cost? We'll break that down next with the Press Gallery. Stay with us.
Two historic hurricanes leaving massive damage in their wake, obviously Hurricane Fiona in the Atlantic provinces, and now Hurricane Ian in Florida. The cost of climate change is an urgent issue. Today, actually, a new report from the Canadian Climate Institute says climate damage has already hit Canada's economy and that by 2025, climate impacts will slow down Canada's growth by $25 billion annually. Get this, that equals out to about 50% of the projected GDP growth for that year or about $620 per year for every Canadian. But if officials act now, they say, and adapt, for example, infrastructure, the economic impacts of climate change may be cut in half and even by 75% with a global effort. But can the federal government do more or not? What are the politics of spending more now to prevent disasters later? That's been the story of climate change. Press gallery is going to weigh in on that. Tana McCharles from the Toronto Star is here, and Zian Lum from Political it joins us. Zian, let me just start with you. Um, we're just getting, like, this report on the heels of Fiona as we're watching Hurricane Ian. And the, the report on climate change is always, you know, we can't afford to do anything now because of the high cost of living, inflation, and affordability. How do politicians handle knowing a big bill is going to come from things like the storms? Well, I think this report is really good gruel for the argument that, you know, it's cheaper today to spend on these climate measures than is being stuck with that large bill tomorrow or in the future. Um, but my issue with this specific report is that it didn't uh, give examples or define what it means by proactive adaptation measures. So for roads, does that mean uh, buying more building materials that can absorb uh, more water than just repelling water in areas where there, you know, it's flooding risks, so you don't want that to happen? Um, does it mean more, you know, CCUS, uh, carbon capture utilization and storage, because if you ask industry, that's certainly an emissions abatement investment. But if you ask environmentalists, that's a fossil fuel subsidy. So, you know, this argument that, um, you know, paying for climate action today is cheaper than being stuck with the bill tomorrow is very strong right now. Uh, we saw in the States, Janet Yellen uh, used the same argument uh, yesterday, and it's a compelling one politically because of our current circumstances, uh, inflation, high cost of living, uh, Fiona cleanup, and now uh, Hurricane Ian. Uh, th those, are, those are top line news measures right now. Right. So this but report the didn't name it. the details, right? Yes. I mean, as you say, uh, Tonda, as Yan says, okay, great, we got to do it, but what? Is it carbon capture and storage? Is it, you know, all these things are political fights waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. They're big political fights because they're big ticket items. Uh, this report pretty much aligns with everything we've heard out of the uh, international community, that climate change is already underway. And so that the costs of doing nothing are just going to mount, mount and compound um, as the years go on that we don't uh, adapt and don't try to mitigate future losses. Um, but what can be done? Look, uh, Zian mentioned carbon capture and storage. Look, that is something that the industry is seeking to invest in themselves very heavily out west and wants and needs government support for. Is that something that will appeal to this government? This government has to, and any government in the next few years, has to rack up some wins and some victories and show some progress on climate change. Uh, so, you know, I expect we've heard Christia Freeland be uh, sort of intrigued by that technology. Maybe the, that down the road we will see that kind of investment. In the north, the thing is, there's no part of Canada that is unaffected. Every, both the coastlines, the prairies in droughts, and the north in melting permafrost. I mean, the kind of infrastructure adaptation that needs to be done uh, is there 
right in front of their eyes, and people in local communities are demanding help with it. Um, I expect that these but sound it's like expensive. politically challenging like it, things, but uh, big ticket, absolutely, uh, multi-billions. But that report in, also yeah, shows the billions uh, as the cost of doing nothing. Well, that's it. So the cost of inaction is high. The cost of action is high. And when a government's mm -hmm. facing deficits, for the conservatives, how do you calibrate this? Because they also are seeing that their constituents are interested in these issues as well, but they're also interested in paying their bills today and a government spending, you know, for tomorrow when people can't buy groceries today is a pretty tricky political trade-off. Yeah, the conservatives are a very interesting example here because they're very, they want to support the industry and they're focusing on touting Canadian oil as kind of lower emissions compared to other uh, global producing uh, nations. Um, yeah, it's like a very interesting political calculus that's being played out. And going back to the previous panel, when I mentioned how, like right now, we're expecting, or the PBO is expecting a softer landing because of oil and gas revenues, that's the other like end of the spectrum too, because right now that industry is kind of like buttressing, uh, you know, recession fears, I guess, big recession fears, hard landing recession fears. Um, but right now we're also seeing, you know, balancing this need to reduce emissions and to like go forward with climate action as well from the government. Well, that's it. Uh, I think the revenues it, from I oil think, and gas I think have it, always been a key, key for that. Tonda, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that it all adds some pressure on to the conservative opposition to come up with a credible climate change plan in this respect. Look, a previous uh, conservative government, Stephen Harper, uh, did support a climate pricing plan under a cap and trade uh, system and did want to align Canada's uh, actions with a democratic administration in the U.S. Um, right now, we haven't heard from the conservatives what their option B is. Um, you know, he wants to use technology, but uh, Poiliev wants to use technology to um, make some progress, but fails to identify what technology um, he he, I think, will feel some pressure in the coming couple of years to outline specifics what he would do uh, other than deny that climate change is a problem. He wants to boost the oil and gas industry, well and good, except how is he going to counter the emissions mm -hmm. effect of that? So I think that, look, this is, a, this is an issue that has galvanized the Canadian public we've seen in the last couple of elections. They do want answers on those, those issues. Uh, so I think the right. political pressure mounts on him to a certain extent. Right. And, you know, the Liberals argue in the NDP there's a first mover economic advantage to paying into this. And the Conservatives are saying unless China and India do it, there's a first mover disadvantage on it. And they're both pretty compelling cases because of the global nature of this. All right. I do got to leave it there, though, with two hurricanes going on, Fiona and Ian. Uh, the, these are top of mind issues. Tanya McCharles, Jian Lim, great to have you both. I should just say, Jian, on, on, some, on, on one good news, is can we say there's good news in the world? Congratulations on getting engaged recently. So that's great news. Thank you. Aww. Listen. <laughs> Congratulations. We need, we need it. Thank you. That's right. We need every smile we can get in a world right now. We are thinking about Canadians, obviously, on the East Coast and anybody down in Florida right now. We hope they're okay in Hurricane Ian. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thanks for watching. We'll be back in 23 short hours. Lots more coverage of the hurricane right here on CTV News Channel. Hug your loved ones. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow.